Welcome to the Dialoguing Life Podcast, the podcast designed to get you talking about the interesting and contentious parts of our life together. I'm Peter Nauta, and this is episode number three, a conversation with author and feminist Tammy Kaler. We discuss the process of becoming a published author, including the research that goes into writing authentic scenes within the racing world of her murder mystery novels. We also talk about elements of feminism, including the experiences of real-world racing women, what feminism means today, and how to encourage girls to break through expectations. This podcast is part of the Dialoguing Life community, a place where people can share their experiences and discuss heated topics without the vitriol found on many social media sites. Let's get started. Talking with Tammy Kaler, uh, who is an author among many other things. I know you've worn a number of hats over your career, and I'm not sure I can adequately define you in an introduction. Would you mind uh, introducing yourself? Sure. So um, I am basically I'm a writer. Uh, my career has been in technical writing, marketing writing, a little bit of advertising. Uh, these days, I do a lot of online content, write a lot of websites, that kind of thing. That's branched into some other things, some some project management. I started actually in college admissions, um, but primarily it's been about words. And then somewhere along the way, after um, a beginning uh, most of my life of not thinking I could write fiction at all, I used to say I couldn't write fiction. I could write anything. I just couldn't write fiction. Uh, I started writing fiction. Uh, that was about hmm, 14, 14 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, just woke up one day with an idea and started writing and, you know, kept, have been doing it, kept doing it. So uh, words, words are what I'm all about. Um, all kinds of writing. All right. Well, I better watch my words then to make sure I use the right ones. <laughs> I'm better at writing than speaking though. So no judgment. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you said you, you woke up one day with an idea and uh, probably a little bit of a, a creative uh, creative bug, a you know, desire to, to do some fiction writing. Uh, so what was the process of going from, hey, I have this idea and this, this inclination to actually having a book published? Yeah. Well, first of all, it was a long process. Uh, second, it... Uh... It wasn't necessarily linear. I, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't really know what I was doing. But so yeah. So I woke up with an idea. Now I, I should. I should back up for a step and preface this by saying I have always been a reader. I am a huge, 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 huge reader since since I learned to read. And still, I just I devour fiction. So there was the day that I woke up and I woke up with a scene in my head and I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I never really had that before. And it was sort of the setup of what could be a novel. And I, I kind of, you know, mentally went, huh. And it didn't really leave. It sort of stuck around and I thought about it a little more and, you know, where could this go and what could I do with it? And so I wrote it down and then I wrote a little more, you know, about where it could go. Um, and, and this was just the idea, not really as a, as a, as a story yet, but, uh, I, it, it just, it stuck with me and I thought, all right, I should try and do something about this. And I looked around where I was, I uh, was actually in Northern California at the time and found a great independent bookstore nearby that offered classes. And there was a class called, do you have a book in you? And I thought, well, that's the question. <laughs> <laughs> so I signed up for this class, which was, you know, four weeks, one night a week, a couple hours. And, but this is how clueless I was. Okay. So I'm halfway through the very first session of this class, 
And it occurred to me, oh my God, she's going to make me right. Like how, how this hadn't occurred to me before, <laughs> you know, like, you know, so clueless, kind of an idiot. But I did. I went home and I wrote. Um, and I happen, I tend to be, um, sort of competitive and, and type A and an overachiever. So having deadlines and, and, you know, needing to sort of deliver and perform to keep up with a class is a real good thing for me. And so I went home and I wrote and I kept writing and I kept writing and I went through the class and I'm writing this story. And then I went into the next class that this person was teaching, which was called uh, You Can Finish That Book. And then I went into the writing group that she um, held once a week. And a year and some later, I finished that story, that manuscript. And it was book length and it was absolutely terrible. Um, never <laughs> will see the light of day. <laughs> but, you know, it, 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 it taught me how to do it. And it taught me sort of the process and what it feels like to finish. And so that was right about the time that I was involved through um, a freelance writing customer I had. I got involved in racing and I went to a number of races for this customer over the season, not writing so much as just sort of being an extra hand for hospitality and entertaining people, guests at the race. And I learned about this world that I'd never known existed. And I, uh, met a bunch of people and got a bunch of information and, and had an idea to write a mystery series set in the racing world. And again, that was right about the time I finished the first manuscript involved in this, had this idea and just went, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Here I go. And started writing. That took about a year and a half to write. And I queried agents. I mean, that's the first thing that you do if you're trying to be traditionally published. And got an agent sort of indecently fast. Uh, it was about six weeks. It's ridiculously fast. And then it took four and a half years to sell the book to a publisher. Um, but it finally happened. And that's you, you knew me when, when I finally got that contract. And I was mm -hmm. published um, first in 2011. Uh, yeah, and I seem to recall that that four-year period of shopping around was probably quite disheartening. It was. It was tough. Yeah, because, you know, you're sending out and it would have been one thing if I'd if we'd sent the manuscript to publishers and they'd all said, we don't like this. But we would get back responses from one that say, well, I really like A, but I don't like B. And the next one would say, I really like B, but I don't like A or, you know, and C needs a little work or whatever it is. So there was never anything concrete we could we could get our hands around and that I could actually fix. Um, hmm. And, yeah, there were a lot of points of sort of questioning, you know, why am I doing this? Because you send, you send something away and then you wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and get a no. And you start the process over again. And meantime, you're, I was trying to write the second one, which just never really worked. I just, I couldn't, couldn't sort of pull it together. I, I started it any number of times, um, which was good because I had a lot of material for when I finally did go write it. But uh, yeah, it was a tough, it was a tough time. Not for the faint of heart. <laughs> Yeah, I, I imagine those situations, it's it's hard not to get discouraged. Yeah. Yeah, you've got you've to be doing it because you want to be writing, not because you want to be published. Makes sense. Now, uh, you said helping out a client with some of the hospitality and the things surrounding racing is what got you interested in it. Mm -hmm. uh, having read the books, or at least some of the books, I have to admit I haven't read all your books yet. Mm -hmm. The, the racing scenes are very authentic. Yeah. 
obviously this was a brand new world to you. So what, what was your process of getting to know the world well enough to write such authentic material? Yeah, research. Um, well, first of all, when I when I sat down with this audacious idea, you know, I'm I'm brand new to the racing world and I'm brand new to mysteries. I've only ever written one terrible manuscript in my life. I'm going to write a mystery novel. Um, and moreover, I had had this idea to sort of have the main character. And when I first conceived of it, the main character was like someone in marketing, you know, sort of at the fringe. And I had a fortuitous dinner with a published author, uh, a wonderful woman named Hallie Efren, who was one of the Efren sisters. So Nora Efren was her older sister. Um, and Hallie teaches writing, writes some great novels. And I had dinner with her about the same weekend that I had this idea. And I explained to her this great idea. And she said, who's your main character? And I started to tell her and she said, no, 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 no. She has to be the racing driver. And you know, it was sort of, it was, I, I, I call it one of those moments that I think we all have when something hits you and your response is both, oh, that's so right. And oh shit, that's going to be hard. You know, <laughs> like it's like painful and exhilarating at the same time because I knew what it meant for research. So it was a pretty audacious idea I had. Um, even more, so my husband is an engineer and, and he was the one who looked at me and said, if you're going to do this, you have to do it right. You know, you can't, you can't half-ass this description of, of racing and of technology and things like that because you can't, you don't want to throw people out of the story and, you know, you don't want people to pat you on the head like, oh, that, you know, that's nice. How nice you tried. And, you know, and I agreed with him. And because I also, I, and I, I did all this research and I talked to all these people. I mean, it's talking to people mostly and asking questions and people gave me so much of their time and their knowledge and their expertise that I didn't want to let them down by misrepresenting it either. So it was, it's, it was a thing from the beginning, like that I have to, I have to be accurate. And I think I have been accurate. I mean, I have real drivers, first of all, give me the information about how to drive a racetrack before I write it and then check it after I write it. And this the most recent book I did about uh, driving in the Indy 500, racing in the Indy 500. I went back and forth three times with a woman who races in the Indy 500, who fortunately for me is a big reader. And so she was thrilled to help, you know, create a novel basically. But I went back and forth so many times, like, is this right? Is this what she would, is this how she would adjust the car right there? So, I mean, down to, you know, in turn three and the crosswind comes up and, and your, your tires are most of a stint old. What are you, how are you adjusting just then? Is, is accurate in the book. So that's, that's sort of the long way around to your, to your question. Um, the, the short answer is I, I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of observing. I do a lot of watching races. I laugh because research for me often looks like me sitting on the couch watching racing on a weekend, which is <laughs> doesn't sound too house, bad. Right, right. And in my house, it's my husband that walks through going, really, you're going to sit there all day? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, shut up. Give me the chip, you know. Like, <laughs> um, so, but I, you know, I read, I read a lot of magazines and articles, and I, I go to as many races as I can. I, I go try and go to the ones I'm writing about at least twice um, before the book comes out. Hopefully, once to research and then once to sort of check once things are written. I ask people all kinds of questions. I've got uh, the managers of teams on email who, you know, rep reply right away. Um, I, you know, I can drop an email and say, Doug, what, what's the highest speed the 
Corvette hits on the front straight of the Long Beach Grand Prix, you know, and he'll write back. Of course, then he wrote back and I put that in a book and then I gave him a copy of the book when I saw him. This is Doug Feehan, manager of Corvette Racing. And uh, he looked at me and he said, you know, I don't really know if that was true. I made something up. <laughs> I said, probably five people in the world are going to know that it's wrong. If it's wrong, and I'm pointing them to you. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it, it's a big, it's a big thing. It's, it's, uh, it's as big an effort as actually plotting the book um, is the research and making it right. But, you know, I take a lot of pride in that. And I've actually, I've won some awards from auto racing organization, auto racing writer organizations, which to me, you know, validates that effort that I've been trying to make. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I'll say I'm not a huge racing person. I've watched some here and there. I prefer the street uh, mm-hmm. street tracks. I'm not a big fan of the the NASCAR ovals. Uh, yeah. But yeah, every, everything that I've read, it, it definitely puts you in, in the seat and, and gets the heart pumping. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And that's the biggest compliment, honestly, is, you know, <laughs> someone I know had to take like half a Xanax after a description in one of the pay- in one of my books about she's mildly claustrophobic and there was a description of Kate getting in the car and you know strapping in and all that and my friend was like yeah I got so stressed out I had to take medication like that's a compliment I mean to you know that your words and your description can make people can make people feel something is is a huge compliment definitely now something you've uh, alluded to uh, but for people that aren't familiar with your world i want to point out that your your lead driver is is kate riley so it's it's a female driver which yes. uh there certainly are those out in the real world but i uh i know a lot less than than there are male drivers a lot less a lot fewer of them yeah yeah uh and and kate definitely fits the description of being a strong female lead was that the goal when you first started thinking about writing creatively when you were going to those classes is you, you want to have a, a strong female lead as your protagonist? Not as such. No, I started writing in first person because that's what made the most sense to me. And that is obviously a female because that's what makes the most sense to me. Now I did start off part of the impetus for writing this character and writing you know, mystery set in the racing world. It it all sort of happened together because really what happened was I got to know this world and I was, uh, I was involved in sports car racing, which is not NASCAR. It's not IndyCar, which is what the, the 500 Indy 500 is. Um, it's, it's, uh, races on street circuits, street and road courses, not ovals. Um, and it's cars that you'd mostly recognize. So Porsches, BMWs, Ferraris, they have Mercedes now, Audis, that kind of thing. And so it's, it, but it's, and it's a smaller, it, it's, you know, it's less known. And so there's less hype and, you know, sort of overblown and crowds and things. So it, it was a little more accessible. And I was, I was very involved because I was representing a company that was both a team sponsor and a series sponsor. So I was sort of seen as a representative of this and of this uh, company and treated real well. And I got to meet a lot of people and things. And what happened was because I had this insight, I met women who were there uh, in professional team capacities. And I make that distinction because there are, there are always women at the racetrack. Um, there are some fans, and then you can always bet on women there for their appearance. 
you know, it's making no comment about their actual intelligence or, or skills or talents, but they are there for their appearance. And I'm like, you know, the Pirelli girls, right? Mm-hmm. The umbrella girls who hold umbrellas over the drivers as they sign autographs. The grid girls who hold flags or number signs in front of the cars on the grid. Um, the, these days, what are the monster, the monster girls who are on the podium, the trophy girls for NASCAR? Um, so, you know, women who dress in, in spandex, right? And mostly take photos with men. And so, you know, we, that's sort of the stereotype of women at the racetrack, not drivers or anything else. But what happened was I got involved in this world and there were those women, but there were also, I met women who were drivers and former drivers and now instructors and pace car or safety car drivers and, uh, women who are engineers and women who, you know, ran entire giant hospitality setups for the series or for teams and, it was the idea. So I had an idea of, you know, a mystery series set in this world because I like the construct of a mystery series. I loved Dick Francis who wrote, um, some 40 novels of mystery novels set in steeplechase racing in England. And I loved that. I want to do that for, for auto racing. And I liked, I, I, I wanted to showcase a woman in that arena. Um, you know, it's sort of, it's the fish out of water thing. And, Definitely, it was part of the point to have it be a woman in order to highlight um, the fish out of water aspect, the woman in an unusual role kind of thing. So I guess, I guess thinking back, part part of the answer to your question is yes, I set out to do that, but I never articulate. But no, I didn't because I never articulated in my head I'm going to write a badass female, you know, feminist screed, right? I didn't, I didn't do that. It was just. A woman made sense. A woman would sh- would highlight some of the things I wanted to point out about racing, you know, provide some interesting conflict for a mystery series and so forth. Um, I think that answers it. Yeah, that was a, a very in-depth answer. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned the things like the grid girls. I know there's been some controversy about removing grid girls. Um, and, and I think a lot of people who maybe don't think about it or who have grown up watching racing. It's just, that's just the way it is. And it's, they don't see it necessarily as, as an issue or not. They just don't think about it. It's just the way it is. And and so I imagine for you coming into the sport, getting to know it relatively late in life, some of these things that people just take for granted and just the way it is, you're seeing fresh and, and with your perspective, you think, well, that's weird. So are are there certain parts of racing that, that you've seen that, that you think are just kind of odd uh, and that's people see it as well? That's just the way it is. Well, that's that's really the biggest one, the role of women. And, yeah, there's been there's been some brouhaha lately because uh, Formula One, which, uh, you know, worldwide series and was just bought uh, from its longtime owner. <laughs> a man, a man in his eighties, Bernie Ecclestone, who had said has said t- terrible things about women in the past. Um, you know, they should they should just wear white like appliances because that's you know what they're good for, and you know the women drivers will never amount to anything, and so on and so forth. So Formula One was bought by an American um, multimedia company, I think Liberty Media, and they're making some changes, which I think is great because it'll modernize everything. And they just announced they're not going to have they're they're doing away with grid girls. And I think they're going to have grid kids, which is, that's great. You know, honor people in some other way or highlight people. But there's been a lot of backlash about that because, you know, a lot of people are pissed off because it's tradition, right? And you're, you're screwing with tradition. And a lot of, a lot of men will say, you know, well, 
and, and they'll, you know, they're joking, right? Well, you know, that's, that's half the reason I watch anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, okay, there are clubs for that, you know, uh, you don't have to go to a race for that. And many people will say, well, you know, they're, it's discriminating against women to just, you know, have them there on display and they're objectified and, you know, they're, they're just treated like objects and, the grid girls themselves are pissed off because they're losing their jobs. And they're, I'm ne- I've never been discriminated against. I've never been objectified, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, it's, but at the same time, it's happening. And it happened in another series, another smaller series last year, I think. Um, meanwhile, NASCAR and uh, I think the sports car racing, which is actually owned by NASCAR now, have sort of doubled down because their series sponsors, Monster and WeatherTech, have, have girls that are always around. So. It's, you know, it's been a big thing. It's been a lot of, there's been a lot of discussion about it. And I am all for getting rid of the grid girls. Now, I don't care if they wear the same thing, do the same activities, but give them more of a role of like brand spokesperson. Don't just make them something to look at. Um, That was really the dichotomy for me when I first got involved with racing. It's like, here are women valued for their talents and skills and intelligence, not just how they look. And that's what I found so intriguing about this world. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of against a role for women in racing that values them only for how they look. I mean, I get that. We like to look at attractive people. Okay. But we're at races to watch racing. And the biggest problem for me is what I've seen said in a lot of like tweets and social media posts and things is really the kids who come to the races who then if mostly the women are you know seen and not heard and valued just for their looks that's all they think women can and should do in the racing world and who wants to tell a little girl that who might you know like messing around on her bike or her go-kart or something with her father who might be encouraged to go into um, engineering or driving or, you know, marketing, hospitality even, but only sees that women are there looking pretty, you know, not even opening their mouths. I, it's just, it's really about the environment you create. Is it, is it welcoming to people? Can people see themselves, you know, can, can women see themselves in all kinds of roles? in in that world. Um, and I don't ever want to discourage anyone from that. So there's definitely a piece of my books that's wanting to do my little part to create a role model and encourage girls to race or be involved so that we have more representation rather than the handful you see at the top levels. So yeah, how women are perceived and the role of women a la grid girls is really the biggest thing that I've seen and sort of questioned and wished would change. And, you know, some of it is slowly changing. So that's good. It is. I I like that you've used your platform to highlight women doing other things. And, you know, you mentioned you you get to know women in during your research, as well as doing the the work at the races, getting to know people Mm -hmm. that do the the engineering and and the other parts of it. And that's a lot less visible than the driver. So that's probably uh, a good thing to draw girl's attention too, but probably also quite difficult since those people tend to be out of the spotlight anyway. Yeah, it's interesting. There's, it's going to be interesting next year because um, IndyCar 
So that's the the series that runs at Long Beach and that runs the Indy 500, um, the sort of open open wheel, you know, wheels sticking out without fenders and stuff. One of the teams just hired probably the best female engineer uh, for for racing, racing race engineer, which is a specific role um, in the world. She's she uh, led her team to victory at the 24 Hours of Le Mans, I think three times. Wow! And yeah, so they just hired her, and it was the news came out, and there were a bunch of us because I, well, through this, I've also gotten to know women who are race fans, and so there's a very you know, there's a very robust crowd of us out there on social media and, you know, occasionally connecting at races and things. But we like fangirled over this woman. Her name's Lena Gage. She's uh, British and she's coming over. I guess she's moved now over to, to uh, Indianapolis to work with the team. And we all like fangirled and like, this is who I'm stalking. Forget drivers. This is who I'm stalking through the paddock for an autograph next year because she's awesome. And, you know, we were like tweeting the team and like, come on, you got to sign set her up with autograph sessions too. And, you know, they're like, oh, she's going to be a little busy. And I'm thinking, yeah, guys, you guys, this is your opportunity. You know, don't, yeah. And you, but, but that's to your point. You're right. They are busy. You know, they're usually tucked back in the, in the, uh, um, garages, you know, making plans and things where the drivers step out to do autographs and stuff. So we'll, we'll have to see. I sort of think there might be some audience pressure to get her to get her out and, you know, cause she's got a fan base. Um, so it's going to be real interesting. I'd love to see that get more exposure and encourage, encourage more girls uh, and young women to, to go for it. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, so it's probably pretty obvious now listening to the, this conversation, but uh, to be clear, uh, feminism is, is a pretty key part of your identity uh, and it's, it's worked its way into these books that you've written. Tell me what that means to you and how it impacts your life. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't, I didn't like, you know, grow up sort of like, you know, women, power, feminism, all that kind of thing. And I, to this day, I'm, I'm pretty careful. I I don't like, I don't like conflict as a, you know, as an individual, I really don't like conflict. So I, I tend to stay off of social media with statements. Right. Because I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be trolled. I don't want to, I had that happen last year with some comments about grid girls. And I just like, I, I don't need it. You know, who needs that kind of tension? But it is important to me. And, you know, there's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have written these books wanting to sort of present, you know, an, an alternate reality. Right. Um, if it wasn't important to me. And I think I took another step with it with the most recent book, the the book set at the Indy 500. And because it has, um, it has an element of, of a cold case. There's a, there are some, there's a portion of the book that's set in, um, 1987. So 30 years before the current day, that is the rest of the book with Kate Riley. And the, uh, the 30 year prior story is another woman who was attempting to qualify back then for the Indy 500 who ended up committing suicide um, because the pressure got to her. Now, of course, this is a mystery, so she didn't commit suicide. She was murdered, and Kate, in the current day, figures that out and has to solve that crime, etc. But you think about, you know, what our society is like today for women who step outside the box. It was a lot worse in 1987. And so I really tried to hit that hard. And I mean, I think what's interesting is, you know, that's, that's hard for me in a way, because I, 
I haven't experienced some of the really awful stuff. I mean, I haven't experienced some of the really awful stuff that my, my, my female race fan friends on social media have. I mean, I had, I had just saw a tweet the other day from someone who I know who goes to the same race as I do, who's apparently been asked, you know, who are you here to have sex with? And, and they didn't say it that politely. You know, they <laughs> used the more crude term, you know, like challenging her, like, why are you at the race? Obviously you're only here to, you know, have, have sex. So I, I haven't dealt with that much less anything worse back in the eighties, but I, you know, again, did research, talked to people, read a lot of articles, you know, read about Janet Guthrie, who was the first woman ever to drive in the Indy 500 back in the seventies and what she went through. Um, and it was only in the seventies that women, uh, were allowed in the pits. Is that right? Journalists, female journalists weren't allowed in the pits of the Indy 500 until the 70s. Mind you, this is a race that has been run for more than 100 years. I think the first year that Janet Guthrie qualified, they wouldn't let her in the garages. I mean, it's just, it's, it's like it's unthinkable now in 2018, but that's not that long ago. And so I, in this last book, tried to really sort of dig into that. And I've had people say, you know, and, 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 by dig into that, I mean, you know, put both characters past and present in situations where people are being really awful and saying some really awful things and treating women pretty badly. Um, and I've had people ask me, you know, like, is this, is this really how it is? And like, yeah, and probably worse. So it's, uh, feminism. That was the question, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Um, so yeah, so it, it has become more important to me as I learn more and I hear more stories about, you know, peers who have these kinds of experiences even today. And, you know, I, yeah, I have a little bit of a platform and I'm going to, I'm going to make, make the kind of statement I want to stay, I want to make. So, um, it is important to me. I just have to keep figuring, you know, where, where do I keep going with that? And what kinds of, what kinds of things do I want to keep saying? Gotcha. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Tammy. If you have opinions or questions about this episode, please drop by Dialoguing.life to share them. We're a community that engages in civil dialogue on contentious issues. Notes and discussions about this episode, along with links to Tammy's website and books, can be found at Dialoguing.life. If you know somebody that will enjoy this conversation, send them a link to let them know. And now, back to the conversation. I find it odd that racing, uh, of all the sports, that racing has this very male-dominated culture. Given that the, it's really the the equipment, it's the machine that's doing the heavy lifting, and it's the driver doing the finesse to to coax the most out of the machine. But to me, that seems like it's a it would be a very neutral playing field compared to something like co-ed football. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it makes you wonder why it is the the way it is. Well, I was going to say, with, it's, it's like horse racing and car racing. It's something else is doing the work, right? You know, it's not your own strength like, like tennis or like football or something like that. Um, and it is interesting. I mean, I, I, you know, I think it just goes back to sort of traditional societal roles. You know, men play the sports, women don't. And so it, even, even though the car doesn't care what gender you are, it evolved as a thing men did, not women. You know, some of it, like, uh, so there was, there was, uh, 
the 24 Hours of Le Mans is an endurance race I've mentioned. It's in, it's in the countryside in France every June, and it runs for 24 hours, and you have teams of drivers. And there was a time back in the 60s, and I actually spoke with a woman who was a journalist who also raced around that time, and she had an offer to take part in one of those teams at the 24 Hours of Le Mans with, I think it was Briggs Cunningham, and he was he had a team with uh, Corvettes in the 60s. But Le Mans, the organizers would not let women race at that time because it was too dangerous for them. Now, they got over that some years later. The woman I spoke with never got a chance to race there, which is, you know, a great shame. But um, that was some of the feeling, like this was too dangerous for women to do. Now, the 60s were also an era when drivers were dying left, right, and center because there was just no safety equipment on the car or on the driver is what it was what it was. But, um, you know, there was definitely, there was definitely a perception that, you know, men were for the rough and tumble and they could take the risks with their lives and women shouldn't, they should be protected. I mean, that's just a societal thing. At the same time, it is these days, it is ridiculous because truly the car doesn't care. Now I will say in indie cars, um, there is no power steering. So you do have to have some amount of upper body strength and, um, the the women I know who have raced in those cars have some serious serious guns <laughs> from wrestling wrestling the car like that. Um, but still, it's not something a woman can't achieve. So, you know, Danica Danica finished third was her best finish and led the race uh, in the Indy Five Hundred, and she's you know probably a hundred pounds dripping wet. So. It's nothing women can't do, and it's just it's just perceptions needing to change and hopefully changing slowly. Yeah, now you mentioned uh, Danica, Danica Patrick, probably the most famous U.S. Uh, female race car driver. Mm-hmm. How have experiences, uh, her experiences or, or others like Pippa Mann influenced how you write about Kate? Yeah, they have. Um, and, and Pippa is uh, Pippa's a British woman who lives in the United States now who um, – has raced open wheel cars in Europe and then the U.S. And she's she was the one I mentioned is the big reader who was my source for the Indy 500. She's raced now in the Indy 500, I think, six years. I think this coming one will be her seventh year and uh, has done very well for being, you know, not in one of the the top, top teams. Um, and she's she works all year to raise the money to race that one race. Um, it's like half a million dollars or something. And she works and works and works, not, not earning the money herself, but working on sponsorships and then deliver, you know, doing the sponsorship events and fulfillment for sponsors and things like that. Um, so raising the sponsorship money is what I mean when I say by working. Um, so there is a woman committed to a goal, one, you know, a single three and a half hour goal in the year. It's crazy. Watching what they go through, uh, I've never met Danica. I've never had a chance to talk with her, but you know, I follow her on social media. I read the articles about her, and I see the kind of response she gets, both positive and negative. And the same with Pippa. Although Pippa, I know, I've talked with her. I've, I haven't, I haven't sat down and said, "Okay, Pippa, tell me everything awful," you know, because you, you don't really do that to someone you don't know very well. But you know, she's she's dropped hints here and there. I've asked a couple questions. And just sort of, and, and, and then I take that and I extrapolate, um, which is better anyway, because, you know, I don't want to take anything verbatim. Um, but if I, if I take a nugget of truth and, and then imagine a bit more, add my spin to it, that, that works out better for fiction for me. 
Um, but definitely I, I observe what's going on and how people talk about them and the kinds of incidents and experiences they hear about. I also know some people who know Pippa and know um, Catherine Legg and Simona de Silvestro and some of the other women who have, who have raced at the higher levels and hear from them some of the stories about things the women go through. Um, so I just sort of try and take it all in and, and you know, stir it, stir it into the pot. It w- was funny after, I forget which book, second or third of my book. I've written five. There are five in the series. Uh, I did an interview with a guy who um, was uh, a blogger, a racing blogger, who is particularly supportive of women and particularly loves Danica. And he said, you know, I was, I was so struck by reading your book and like some of the things that you have your character go through are so similar to the kinds of, you know, crap that Danica has to put up with. Did you base it on her? And I was like, Listen, I just base it on everything any powerful woman goes through in any industry. Like there was nothing <laughs> unusual about, you know, backlash for how you look or what you say. You know, it's like, it just so there's a lot of universal truth that I can put into this that isn't, you know, it doesn't always come from just how the, the, the female racer is treated. Sadly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not, not the greatest statement on society. No. No. Changing. I have to believe that. <laughs> yes. Oh, definitely. Now, w- within your novels, Kate Riley fits in, in particular because she's just one of the guys. And I, I've seen that in some other areas where a male-dominated group, someone, you know, women fit in when they're just one of the guys, which makes sense as, as a first step. How do you think, or maybe it already has in the racing world, that can be expanded to include women that are not just one of the guys, but but want to retain more of a feminine identity? Yeah, I think I've downplayed that some with Kate. I think it does because, you know, every, every woman's an individual, and woman can still be one of the guys, but, you know, be very obsessive about her manicure and her nail color or, you know, her hair products or, or things that we think of as traditionally more girly, more feminine. Sure, a driver is going to run around more in, you know, trousers and fire suits than frilly dresses, but they're still, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about women I see at the races and they're, you know, like, like any group of women anywhere, there are some that are more feminine and some that are not. It's in part, I think the answer is that it's, you know, it's not a place for a lot of femininity, uh, at least the trappings that we think of as femininity. But plenty of the women I know who are professionals, you know, in, in the skilled jobs, again, I don't mean to put down grid girls because that's not, I'm, I'm making no judgment about their skills or, or intelligence, um, but, you know, they're, it's, it's a different kind of job. So the women I know who are engineers or who are drivers or whatever, some of them wear lipstick and some don't. And it just sort of depends. Um, I haven't emphasized that a lot with Kate. I've made her a little more of a tomboy, although she, you know, does dress up and get girly now and then. Um, it's not as natural for her, but I, you know, I think it, I think it, it'll just come with more numbers. It's just that it's when there are three of them and two of them are more tomboy types, you know, you think, oh, well, you know, they've really, they fit in better if they're like that because we just don't see the evidence of otherwise. But I think what happens is you get into that arena, you know, you're hired as a driver. They look at you as a driver. It's not so much actually, and I'm just thinking of this as I'm saying it, it's not so much that they're one of the guys, it's just they're a driver. 
And, you know, the men are just drivers. Mm. And whatever personality they have, you know, some, some of the male drivers, I'm sure, are completely obsessive about their shoes, right? Or their watches or whatever it is. Um, you know, so they'll all just have different personalities. Um, uh, you know, it, I might have, I might have served Kate better if I'd made her super girly. You know, I think about that now. Maybe I'll, no, I can't really change her. She sort of is who she is. Um, but you know, I, Kate, Kate is definitely who yeah, she is. Yeah. I mean, I, but you know, I think, I think that'll come. Um, I think it'll come. You know, and that's, that's one that I, I have interesting sort of thoughts about, because on the one hand, it's, you know, shouldn't have to be a tomboy. You can be feminine, you know, retain that identity and, and still do, mm-hmm. do the job at hand. But then, you know, that, that sort of <laughs> flips it the other way of, well, what does it mean to be a woman and, and to be feminine? And, you know, if you want to wear makeup, great, wear makeup. And if you don't want to wear makeup, then who the hell am I to say you shouldn't wear makeup? <laughs> right. So that that whole, like, one of the guys or not one of the guys or where does it fit? That's I, I find that kind of an interesting thing to think through, through the the lens of feminism. Yeah. You know, I think we tend to think, you know, being feminist is not being super girly. I think that's sort of the traditional, right? I mean, that's sort of like the 70s feminist, right? No makeup, burning your bra, you know, not shaving your legs, whatever. But that's changed. I mean, these days, and to me, feminism is about do whatever the hell you want. If you're Danica Patrick and Maxim wants you to pose in skimpy clothes and you want to do it, do it. And screw whoever is going to you know, denigrate you for that. If you're Danica or Pippa or whoever else and you don't want to pose in sexy stuff, don't. That's your choice. But it also means people shouldn't pick on you for either choice. Um, and, and I think that's what gets lost. I mean, Danica got a lot of flack for posing super sexy and skimpy. I, you know, I have to admit my thinking, I, I sort of had to come around to it. But you know, do, do what's right for you. And, you know, if that's full makeup under your fire suit and or under your helmet for a race, do it. If it's not fine. So yeah. And you, you kind of, you kind of see all kinds of things, you know, it's just whatever is appropriate for you in the, in the venue you're in. You know, I know my, you know, my friend Pippa, I don't, she doesn't wear makeup on race day, but she loves getting dressed up and, you know, getting all dolled up and made up and hair done, and fancy dress and, you know, in, in, the, in her off time or for parties or things. But, you know, she looks at it as what's appropriate for the venue and the, the, the responsibilities and the duties and the job I have right now. Out representing, you know, Susan G. Komen Foundation at a big gala because that's who she was uh, partnered with the last few years. Yeah. Full on pink, girly curls, makeup, the whole nine yards, sparkly, sparkly jewelry. But at the racetrack, you know, it's your fire suit. Everything else is superfluous. Makes sense. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. Sure. When I was in college, I, I went uh, through a physical sciences program. And frankly, it was a very small program. But uh, there there definitely were not very many women in the program. Uh, and there were some uh, women professors, more, of course, men. Um, but those that I, I spoke to both classmates as well as professors here and there, I, I would talk to them. And I I always got the impression that there really wasn't the sexism there at that level. It's nothing trying to chase people out or 
keep them from advancing, at least that as a student that I saw. So it seemed like if, if there was sort of anything preventing women from going to the program, it was really just interest, that there just wasn't the interest in, in going to the physical sciences in the first place. Back at the beginning of this conversation, you, you mentioned that you worked in college admissions. Um, so mm-hmm. I imagine you, you saw some of that of uh, whether it's STEM or other male dominated fields of is, is there the interest among the girls? And I I'd imagine there'd be similarities then between, between that and, and what you saw, what you see now in the racing world. There's some, yes. And I want to, but I want to start by saying there's, there's, there's a piece you're missing in between interest and overt discrimination. And that's encouragement and cultivation. And, you know, I'm going to make some generalizations. So don't, you know, no one jump on me for, you're saying everything is like this. I'm not. I'm, I'm making some generalizations <laughs> to make a point. It starts with as kids. Girls play with dolls and boys play with trucks. Boys play with Legos and build things or tinker toys. And girls play with, you know, Barbie's dream house. I'm seeing it with my niece who's seven years old. You know, and I'm trying to give her the science kids. <laughs> and everyone else is giving her Barbie dream house. <laughs> so it, it, it starts there. It continues through school where people may not even realize they're not encouraging girls to be good in science or do more in science or math. I, uh, my own experience in high school, I was really good at math. And I had a shitty, shitty calculus teacher my senior year in high school, and I was done. So there's a difference. So some of those women probably were deterred for one reason or another before they ever got to your science program. And so the other, the other aspect is seeing, you know, understanding that it's possible and that it's welcoming. You know, the fact that there were no females in your program didn't help encourage other females who might be interested. Now, that's sort of a catch-22. You know, how do you encourage them to get in there when there aren't any in the first place? Uh, I recognize that. But I, I just want to point out there's, a, there's, there's that piece that I think you're missing is that plenty of them, I mean, because, come on, across the population, you know, we're all interested in, in different things. I mean, there, there are women who are interested or could be more interested in math and science than who end up in program. It's a combination of factors that deters them. It's, you know, terrible teachers. It's, it's a lack of encouragement. It's someone steering them, you know, subtly one way or another or not saying, you know, yeah, but you really should take, you know, that AP class in chemistry or whatever it is. And then it's a lack of role models, you know, seeing women in the programs, seeing female professors leading the programs. I think too often we look around and say, well, no one's discriminating against, you know, her, but we don't think about, you know, did, did she realize she could get there? Did she realize that was possible? And that was one of the things I was saying about girls showing up at a racetrack. Did she realize, you know, did the little girl coming in realize a woman could race at that level? Or did she only see women in Lycra? Yeah, my first job was in college admissions, actually at a women's college. And I learned a lot from that. Um, first of all, there are incredible statistics about how much better women do in an environment of all women. And, you know, maybe there's, there's some part of the biology of lack of competition, but there, it also, there's some aspect of less judgment. What I discovered working there for four years 
is that it does something interesting to your brain to be in an environment of mostly women. Now, I was in the administration, and there were men. Um, there was no restriction on that, but the college president was a woman, and the vice president was a woman, and most of the deans were women. And I realized what had happened to my thinking the day I thought, oh, you know, the treasurer is a man. That's kind of weird at a women's college. And I thought, wow, what have I just, what have I internalized about what women can do and what, what, nor what normal is for different roles, for leaders? And that's the thing is you, when you see it all around, it becomes the normal. And that's, that's really the problem with, with the grid girls to me is it becomes the normal that women are seen and not heard and just look pretty. And what we want is it for, for it to become the normal that women are race fans and they're drivers and they're engineers and they look pretty, you know, and they're spokespeople or whatever it is. So I think that part of the problem with females going into STEM is that we're fighting against what people see as normal. You know, it's, it's typical that there aren't women in STEM, unfortunately, um, or in, you know, small, small departments that are engineering or that they're rare. And so we're fighting against that quote unquote normal and we're trying to trying to encourage them anyway. And you know, it's a slow process, but there are lots of lots of in organizations and people really trying to do outreach and, and encourage and nurture women and get them into those careers so that we improve the numbers. Cause again, it's not that women aren't interested. They just get turned off somehow along the way. So that's my thinking. That's some good thoughts. Thank you. All right, well, we'll start to wrap it up here. Okay. I generally like to end the conversations by getting a high and a low and a lesson learned. But before we do that, is there anything more you'd like to share about being a feminist or being a writer? I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to follow this these days, is figure out what makes you happy and do it and try not to judge yourself or other people for what makes them happy. You know, sort of the shrug and like, hey, you be you. And as for, for writing, I don't know, do, you know, find what, what makes you happy and speaks to your soul and, and uh, commit to it. Keep at it. I'll share some words of wisdom that you once gave me that I have <laughs> come back to a lot and, and that I've shared with other people too, which is that editing is a lot easier than writing, but you can't edit an empty page. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it's Mario Andretti said something similar, basically, to finish first, first you have to finish. Like, you can't do anything until you've, you know, written the book or written the page or finished the race. You know, once you've gotten that, you can do something with it effectively. Refine it and make it better. Yeah. Got to do the thing first. Yeah. All right, so what would you say was the lowest moment in your time as an author? <laughs> there was a funny moment. Um, <laughs> some guy I saw at a I saw at an event, some library event. And some guy walks in and he was also a writer of some sort. I think he was had self published a book or was about to. Said, oh yeah, I read your first book. Oh great, thanks. You know, how would you think? I didn't like it as much as I thought I might. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> But that's that's just sort of a funny. That's not really the low. The low the low was really trying to get the the first contract, um, trying to find my publisher 
and questioning if I really wanted to do this and why was I doing this to myself. That was that was the toughest part. Makes sense. Uh, what was the highest moment? I have two. <laughs> one one um, one of the experiences that I've gotten to have because of the research and the people I've met and everything. Working in the pits for the Indy 500 for the broadcast network. That's a moment. <laughs> that's just amazing to be on the inside and have this experience. But on a on a more authorly note, there was a time, and this was years ago, it was very early, someone emailed me and said, I, I so enjoyed your book, you made me go back and get a library card and start reading again. And I got that and I thought, my work is done. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I made someone start reading again and go back to the library. That, like, what else can I ask for? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. What would you say the biggest lesson is that you learned during the process of getting your book written and published? Perseverance works. Even if you don't think you're the smartest or you're the best, if you keep at it, you will get there. That's true. That's true for me in writing and in life. I was doing something the other day. I think I was swimming and I was trying to puzzle over what was the plot for the next book going to be? I had sort of a year off and I'm slowly working on, you know, pulling myself back together and getting back to writing. And it was just, I was like, I'm, and I'm thinking, I was thinking, you know, well, this and this, and I just don't have any good ideas and I'm not good at this. And this is the part I'm really terrible at. And I said, stop. Just keep beating your head against that wall and you will come up with something. And I got a glimmer of an idea. I wouldn't say I, it sprang fully formed yet, but I, and I know, and that's one of the things I've learned over the course of writing five books is that there are plenty of points where I think I'm never going to finish this. It's never going to happen. I'm never going to have another idea. I'm never going to be able, I mean, much less not finish this. I'm never going to be able to start it because I'm not going to have an idea. I won't know where to go next. Or, or, you know, I can't use all of these ideas because these are my last ideas. And, you know, what if I don't have any ideas for the next story? But I've, I've learned at least mostly I have, I have to keep reminding myself, trust that you, I will have more ideas. Just keep at it. Just keep banging your head against the wall or pounding your fingers against the keyboard or whatever it is. It's a good life lesson too. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I find my, I feel like so long as I'm making some progress, so long as I see something going in the right direction, I, I, to have the, the stamina and the perseverance. But when I feel like I'm beating my head against the same wall for always the same sort of outcome and not making progress ahead, that's where it, it gets discouraging for me. So like, I'm not yeah. sure if I would have made it the, the four years that it took you to get published for the, the first book. Well, the interesting, you know, there are a couple of interesting things about that. One is that you have to focus on just the small steps, right? You're trying to climb a mountain. You can't stare at the peak the whole time. You got you to gotta stare in front of you and one foot in front of you. The other is that um, I know a, a psychologist who's a writer, and he specializes on, he, he's in Hollywood, he specializes in working with script writers, screenwriters, he's a screenwriter himself, and he talks about the points when you are the most stuck, you feel like you're hitting your head against the same spot and the same wall and the same thing, is actually the precursor to a breakthrough. Because, you know, you're not, you're not there for that long, right? I mean, you're, you sort of work. You say, I know when I'm writing, I'm like, you know, you, you write a sentence, you write 
this. You write a couple words. You're like, I just, I don't know. I, it needs to do this and this. And you're just, I don't know. You know, you're not there for days. You're not there for hours. You're there for a few minutes. And usually you break through that. And so I've really tried to take that advice to heart. And that's part of what I did when I was swimming and, you know, frustrated and saying, I can't, I can't, I can't, you know, hearing myself say, I can't, I can't, I can't. I was like, okay, keep at it because you're at one of those points of, of, you know, blockage and conflict. And then you're, you're going to go up a level when you break through this. So, you know, keep that in mind too. Try and see those, those blockages as, as opportunities. It's, it's hard as hell to yeah. do, but it's good advice. <laughs> yeah, good advice from, from this perspective. Uh, right. A little harder to remember sometimes when you're in the thick of it. Yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, I guess the, the final thing then is uh, how can people learn more about you or pick up the Kate Riley books? They can. I'm on, I'm on Amazon um, in bookstores, not, not necessarily on the shelf in every bookstore, but um, on, uh, usually in their networks like Barnes & Noble. I'm in their network, so you can you can ask and they can get my books. Uh, you can get more information about uh, the different stories about me, links to all of those different places, as well as independent bookstores that will carry them on my website, which is TammyKaler.com, T-A-M-M-Y-K-A-E-H-L-E-R.com, or just search my name on your sites. Great. Yeah, and I'll, I'll put uh, links to that in, in the show notes uh, for this show, which will be dialoguing.life slash three. Great. Thank you. People can find it there. All right. Well, Tammy, thank you very much for taking the time to, to speak with me today. Thank you. It was an interesting conversation. Lots of things I don't normally talk about. So it was fun to think through that. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tammy about writing and feminism. Notes and discussions about this episode can be found at dialoguing.life slash three. And if you're listening through the webpage, go ahead and subscribe with your favorite podcast app using one of the buttons. Dialoguing Life is a community for productive conversations where people can share their experiences and discuss heated topics without the vitriol found on many social media sites. Join the conversation in dialoguing.life. Thanks for listening.